Welcome to my dad's podcast, My Blackest Challenge National, Season 3. You can find us on anywhere you like to listen to good podcasts. Follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Hope you enjoy the show. Bye. You are listening to my Black is Transnational. I'm your host, Dr. Kalechi Bay Lamberts. And on this episode, I'll be joined by Dr. Chinireo Suji, who will have a very insightful conversation with me about racialization, immigration, and the exploration of Latin culture as a Black scholar, Black transnational scholar um, who grew up with Nigerian immigrant um, connections. So I get into a very diverse conversation with her, which I hope you all will enjoy. But before we get into that, let's go through our formalities. If this is your first time listening to My Black is Transnational, you can find this podcast and subscribe to this podcast on any of your favorite podcast listening apps, whether it's Spotify, Google, Apple, Stitcher, wherever you like to listen to fine audio, you can find this podcast there. Also, we ask that you rate the podcast five stars and you please share your review and your thoughts about the content that you hear. You can also check out past episodes from past seasons. We are in our third season, so we would really appreciate your feedback so that we can continue to tailor the content for your enjoyment. You can also check out our website at www.blacktransnational.wixsite.com podcast for all the information related to our episodes and our guests. Um, if you want to get more information about them or just any information you want to get about the podcast. And if you want to check us out on social media, you can follow us at Black Transnational Podcast on Instagram, or you can follow me specifically, the host at Black Transnational underscore. And we're also on Facebook as well at Black Transnational Podcast as well. And then follow us on Twitter at your own risk <laughs> at MBI Trans, MBIT, um, MBI Transnational uh, on Twitter. Um, I'm struggling with the name. Um, but yeah, so about our guest, Dr. Osuji, she is an associate, I mean, assistant professor at Rutgers University, um, a sociologist um, by training, who uh, is also an author who wrote a book uh, called Boundaries of Love and focuses on interracial marriages uh, among families in Brazil and the United States. Uh, we re- we get into a very, very fun conversation about her experiences growing up as a Nigerian American in an immigrant household in the 80s in Chicago, in the north side of Chicago. And then we also get into her journey that led her to Brazil, that led her to Spain and how she became very fascinated and um, and, and how she came to adopt um, Hispanic and Latin culture as a black um, second generation um, African. And we get into the insightful conversation about the racialization of language and, and, and Spanish in particular. We really have a good time. We talk about so many things and just the, the lack of boundaries that that don't exist when it comes to, or that shouldn't exist when it comes to Black people being able to branch outside what is 
what they're told to do or what they're told to be. And, and we really talk about why, as black people, we do not need to limit ourselves um, when it comes to what we want to explore, who we want to be, where we want to go and travel. So I, I truly enjoyed uh, the content of this particular uh, dialogue that we had. Um, and I think it was very insightful as far as just providing a little bit more depth to the complexities of what it is to be black and transnational, what you could be, I should say, the potential of what you could be as a black transnational um, without any limits. So without any further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Chinere Osuji. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to My Black is Transnational, and today we have on a special guest who will be joining us on the show, um, first-time guest, who is going to be talking about something that I find very important. Um, she is uh, an author of a book. She's a professor, um, a sociologist. Um, most importantly, she's a Nigerian from the Igbo community. I would like to introduce you all to Dr. Chinyere K. Osuji. Um, who is joining me on the show to just to just gist with me and talk to me about all the things that you're doing, which I consider very amazing. So, sis, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I, it's a pleasure to be here and to chat with you today. And to all of your, yeah, to hear all your listeners or yeah. share my experiences with your listeners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. Uh, thank you for taking the time. I know it's busy. I, I, I for sure know what it's like in being in academia and all the obligations and things you have going on but i uh, thank you for taking the time to just talk with us and the listeners and and first before we get deeper into your work i want you because i know i give you your accolades but i want you to also introduce yourself to uh, the listeners and let, let them know who you are and what you do and, and what you stand for and any anything else you want to add sure so um um, my name is Chinyara Keosuji, and I'm a professor at Rutgers University, Camden. And um, I, I'm a sociologist, and I do research on um, ethnic and racial boundaries. In other words, how people create an us versus them along racial and ethnic lines. I'm originally from Chicago, where I was raised in the Nigerian community on the north side of Chicago. Mm -hmm. um, all of my family still lives there, like my nuclear family. And... Um, uh, I now like, live in New Jersey, so I'm a Jersey girl now. <laughs> <laughs> From Nigerian to being a Jersey girl, wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, so like my my first book is called Boundaries of Love. It's published with NYU Press um, last year, 2019. And it looks at interracial marriage in Brazil and the United States. So it compares the experiences of black-white couples in these two societies to understand that phenomenon that we always like take for granted, like, oh, race is a social construct, social construction. Yeah. Well, what does that mean? And so like, I look at the experience of people who are, you know, married and loving across racial lines to get up some of what, how race works in these different societies. That is amazing. That is fantastic. And we're going to talk about that. And we're also going to talk about the, the current works that you you have going on as well, which we'll, we'll get into greater detail. But let's first start in the beginning. Right. You just talked about being um, a Nigerian or growing up in Chicago in, in the north side in the Igbo community. Like what was that like for you uh, growing up in America as but still living this transnational life of being being raised in an, in an Igbo Nigerian community? So I've never heard this word Chigerian before, but I really like that term. 
I'm gonna, I'm gonna steal that from you. Thank yeah, you. yeah. So I, got, I actually, I can't take all. I, I, you know, we know about citing your sources. So I actually got this from another colleague of mine who um, is uh, a, a fellow Shigerian, and she put it together. I was like, you know what? I like that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna add that into my vocabulary. So we're just passing it on now. Got you, got you. So um, my parents, um, they migrated from Nigeria in the 1970s, and um, I was. Um, so I grew up in Chicago, and for my family and for me, it was as if like America ended and began like where the door to our apartment was, right? Like <laughs> yes, I grew yes. up as like almost like an aware Evo girl, like you know, helping mom do the laundry, do cooking and cleaning, and also like doing really you know trying to do my best to gain school, but also like doing things like washing clothes by hand sometimes, mm-hmm. and like. You know, being because I'm also the that, you know, the oldest daughter. Mm. So it's kind of like being a second mom role. Yeah. I have four brothers and sisters. And so it was a lot of work, you know, um, not a lot of like free time. And I remember like growing up, my parents always said like how the first child goes is how the rest of the children will go. Mm. And so it was really important for them to make sure that I was not um, you know, becoming too Americanized, as they'd always say, you're too Americanized, you're too Americanized, yeah. you know? Um, and my family was not cool with that. But um, it's funny because, you know, growing up in Chicago, um, I grew up in low-income housing on the north side, mm-hmm. and the people who are our neighbors, like in the immediate building that we lived in, were largely African-American, had some Puerto Ricans, um, you Mexicans, as well as um, like a smaller proportion of um, Asians. So it was a very multiracial, multi-ethnic building. People who were from the Caribbean, people from um, you know different parts of Nigeria, different parts of Africa. Um, but we were surrounded by white gay Chicago. Mm. So it presented some really striking, you know, um, distinctions or striking. Um, dynamics when it comes to people like my parents who were from like the village in Nigeria and they come to this big city and they're like, what is this thing called, you know, being gay and being out and about, you know, they're like confused. And I was like, I don't know, y'all brought me here and I'm used to it. So <laughs> like, yes, I grew up in the heart of boys town, as you call it in mm-hmm. Chicago. Oh yeah, no, I know exactly where that is. Um, you know, growing up in Chicago as well, and and so like you, you mentioned the idea of that door, right? And I think that's something that's all too familiar for some of us who is listening. Where it's like, as soon as you cross this door, you're in Nigeria. When you go out there, you can be an American as much as you want to be. But when you come to this house, you are you know a Nigerian. But you also hinted on the fact that your parents said this this whole idea of becoming too Americanized and you being the Ada, which is like, for those who do not know, that's like the eldest daughter right, in Igbo. And so that pressure of having to, you know, like you said, not be too Americanized. And how did you manage to navigate that? Because, you know, being the oldest one, um, having to um, manage when, you know, the accent and, and knowing when to speak the language and like what type of things did you have to continue to sustain in order to make sure that you're not too Americanized? So unfortunately, I grew up in what I call the Christy Brinkley 80s mm. in which um, speaking a language that was not English was very looked down upon. Mm. And so my parents, the teachers at my school told my parents that she, she shouldn't learn Igbo because it'll confuse her. Wow. You should only speak to her in English. And so unfortunately, I don't speak Igbo, really. Right. Um, 
none of my siblings do. Although my brother Chidi has gotten better at it because he's back home a few times. Yeah. Um, and like, I only know a couple of you know words here and there. Like people might be able to sell me for a goat and I wouldn't know. <laughs> but I do know the word goat. <laughs> I do know the word goat. But <laughs> um, so I grew up in a time when it was still before that whole diversity is like a beautiful, a good thing, or multicultural America. It was like, you have to be assimilate into whiteness. You want to assimilate as much as possible to be in America. You should speak English. Right. And so I didn't do that well <laughs> trying to figure this out. Cause my parents were like, you know, they're immigrants. They're like, we only know Nigeria. And now we're figuring this America thing out. And I'm there with them. Like explain to me what I, what's going on around me. They're like, oh, they didn't know, you know? So it was difficult as far as understanding race relations in America because Chicago is a very segregated city. Yes. Right? Most of the United States is very segregated, but Chicago is even more so. And so like I would go to predominantly white schools, a grammar school specifically, and having all sorts of things happening to me um, where it was clear that people saw me as less than because I was black and mm. because I was African, I was the worst type of black. Mm. But also um, coming home and like my parents really emphasizing that um, we could not be like the quote unquote Akata, right? Mm-hmm. The African-Americans that lived in our building, mm-hmm. in our vicinity, that my parents were very much about us, um, especially me, like not becoming like them. I think part of it was that um, it was, you know, low-income housing. So a lot of the people there were people who did not necessarily have uh, two-parent households. I remember that there were a lot of girls who would end up pregnant when I, you know, by the time they were in high school. And my parents were very scared. They're like, mm-hmm. we've invested a lot into this idea of coming to America and we cannot, you know, have our first child end up like these girls around us who are like, you know, have boys, can't, God forbid you have a boy, you know, like can't have boys over, you know, hanging out with boys, you know, outside of the house or like, oh, wow. Don't you know, try having that. a child out of wedlock. Ah, oh my God. My God. You know, that was the worst thing. <laughs> abomination. So like, we, it's an abomination. They're like, you are not going to be like any of these people here. So we are having you on lockdown. So my world was mostly school and home. And running errands for mommy. Growing up in Chicago, growing up you know, in the early 80s, my parents were like, this thing called feminism is just so problematic. Like, we are not comfortable with this idea that men and women should be equal. And that was hard being somebody who was raised in the United States, like after like the second wave feminism hit, being like, men and women are equal. Like mommy shouldn't be the only one cooking, daddy should cook too. Oh, wow. And like, yeah. I shouldn't be the only one washing dishes. My brother, Chidi, should also wash, wash dishes. My parents just being horrified. I'm like, what are you talking about? That is not how we do things in Nigeria. This American culture has spoiled you. Yes. You, you should, we should send you back to Nigeria. And I always envisioned, envisioned them like putting me in a cardboard box with holes in it. And sending you on a plane? Me to Nigeria. <laughs> yes. I don't know what they were going to do. And the, and the thing is, like, there were plenty of kids who got sent back. Yes. And, like, scared the mess out of you. Threat. Scared the mess out yes. of you. Yes, it scared the I mess out of you. Like, I will send you back. And you're like, oh, no, like, I'm not missing out on this cable TV. Like, you're not yeah. going to take this away from me. Don't you dare. Like, I will do whatever you say. I promise you. I'm with you. Oh, my God. That used to be the ultimate threat. Like, if I ever thought about acting, I'd say, 
just keep on, keep on. I'll, I'm going to, I'll send you back. You, you go back to Nigeria. Like, ah, like, oh no, I don't want Ooh, that. That was the worst. <laughs> and so, like, going back to Nigeria as a kid, I was like, oh my god, this is what is this horrible place that our parents are making us visit? And then going there, I'm like, oh, this isn't so bad. This is actually kind of fun. Wait, why did they say that they're going to send me back? As a, as if that was a threat. Like, this is actually like fun to like <laughs> run around and like play with my cousins and like hang out as opposed to being stuck, you know, in our apartment building. Like, right. Having no life, you know, in the big city. It's like, oh, Dilla's life isn't so bad. And Dilla's life now is different from what it was in like 1987 or whatever. But it was definitely a thing that you had to be afraid of, like being, like, you know, being vociferous about equality, being vociferous about like being an American. Like, mm-hmm. I can put my hand on my hip. Oh, oh, that's disrespectful. Exactly, like, I sent that. Ah. So disrespectful. But that was like part of the challenge of growing up Nigerian in America. And growing up like American in our Nigerian household. Yeah. So that idea of being like a feminist, I think, you know, looking for equality and equal roles, especially gender roles. And did you have to also struggle with the idea that they use religion as a justifying factor? Absolutely. Mm. And it was funny because like when you read the Bible, you're like, wait a minute. That's not how Jesus was saying things, or that's not what Paul was saying. Mm -hmm. But these ideas, like women cannot wear pants, Mm -hmm. you know, you have to wear a skirt to church. But Jesus wore a skirt. I don't understand. Don't you don't you dare speak about that carpenter like that. What? No, (laughs) he did not wear a skirt. He lived in a tropical climate. He wore overalls, and he wore overalls and had a hammer and a hard hat. Like, of course, he wore like a. A, a kaftan like oh man but yeah i'm sorry that just yeah. that, that's interesting <laughs> isn't that funny how like parents will like and i think part of it is also like that colonial heritage mm-hmm. of the freaking uk right mm-hmm. like teaching us that we have to abide by these victorian notions of respectability to be a good person mm-hmm. to be a good christian when that is when victorian notions of respectability didn't many of them didn't exist you know during Jesus' time so and I guess I'm wrong to say that Jesus grew up in a tropical climate. So I guess it depended on what period of his life you're talking about, right? Anywho, I'll just say that, yes, religion was part of it. Also, just be what it is to be Nigerian. Nigerian girls don't do that. Nigerian women don't do that. The Akatas do that. The Americans do that. You know, like, you don't want to be an American. They're the ones who sleep around and have sex. <laughs> sex. You know, my parents wouldn't even talk I'm about... Here, mommy. They would never say sex. My mom, the mo- the most that she ever told me, she didn't even say sex. She just called it temptation, and that was all. Like that was that was our birds and our bees talk right there. She was just like temptation, Kalechi, no. temptation. Stay away from it. That was it. <laughs> that was it for me. That's all you need to know about sex. Stay away from it. That's it. Oh my god. No temptation. Can't even say sex. That's a temptation. Temptation. That was it. Oh my goodness. All right. Girls in my building were like sixteen, pregnant, and it's like, oh. Wait, what happened? <laughs> How come she's not in high school anymore? Mm. Or what happened to my neighbor? You know, anywho. But yeah, so I can see where my parents are like freaked out on the one hand, seeing you know Americans like American television where girls are like you know making out with boys and oh you know they're really twenty five but they're pretending to be sixteen, making out with boys like oh my god. What is this culture that we've raised, you know, brought our children to? Oh man, you, you're 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 already seeping into the conversations that we're gonna have in the in the next talk series. But like, just that idea of watching TV with your parents and the kissing scene comes on, and how awkward oh. 
Oh, it was so awkward. It was so <laughs> just, just how awkward. Like immediately the TV was gonna get turned off. Exactly, so it was like no close your eyes or like go to your room. Or, Are you watching this thing? Is he supposed yeah. to, like? Oh man, you God forbid. You let's just watch cartoons and like in the cartoons they start kissing. You're just like, I, there's no winning. What can we do? You know, there's no winning. There's no winning. <laughs> You're being corrupted by America. Oh man, oh, it's <laughs> some good stuff. This is good stuff. My God, yeah, I cannot wait. But yeah, yeah, trust me. You know, it's it's so funny when you say when you share these things, these experiences. It's so it's so funny how a lot of us can relate to it. I mean, I when you mentioned the idea of of um that that speaking white and not speaking Igbo you know I relate to that because I don't speak Igbo fluently and even though I grew up for the most part spent most of my time in Lagos like I didn't necessarily grow up in a fully Igbo household I grew up in a partially Yoruba household so I understand Mm -hmm. Yoruba Mm -hmm. more than I understand Igbo but for me because my paternal side my dad is Igbo is like oh my god why don't you like how can you not learn your father's language like what type of thing is this like and I'm like I, you just sit there and you're just like, well, I, I don't, I can't, con- like, this is what they was expecting. I was supposed to learn how to speak the Queen's English because the Queen's English was supposed to be considered more, you know, appropriate and the better mm-hmm. type, you know. But you, there was something powerful you mentioned in there in, in, in your response as well, which the, the idea of the worst type of black and mm-hmm. being African, you know, but being black. But then, but think about it, and, and it's also interesting because on the contrary, like Africans are looking at African Americans as the worst type of black. So it's like how do these conflicting, you know, these conflicting thoughts on each other. Like what was when you were coming up until when you got to college, like did your perceptions change or, you know, did you start to develop your own ideas as far as the African American communities and 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 the relationship there? Or did you find yourself still being isolated because of your upbringing and your household and all the other responsibilities that were put on you as the oldest? So I, I was bullied a lot in grammar school. Hmm. And because of that, my dad was very clear about making sure I did not go to a predominantly white high school. And so I actually went to high school at Whitney Young Magnet High, which is the same um, high school that Michelle Obama went to. She's one of our claims to fame. Um, (laughs) Shout out to Whitney Young. Yeah. And so like it's, it was, when I was going there, it was a school that was, it was majority black. Mm -hmm. It was a school that was created to provide urban kids with an opportunity at a college prep education. Mm -hmm. So it was very much about serving largely black and Latino students when I was attending there. So, you know, moving from this like predominantly white school where a lot of people were like middle class and then going to this predominantly black school where there are a plethora of different types of black, this was, you know, it was a, it was very refreshing. Mm-hmm. You know, it was very um, eye opening in a lot of ways because I think that for a lot of African immigrants, particularly um, when I was growing up, the only African-Americans they knew or mostly African-Americans they knew were ones who were not doing so well, right? Mm-hmm. People who had, you know, cumulative disadvantages over generations, right? Well, like my mom is a single parent. I'm a single parent. We don't have, you know, this intergenerational wealth that white Americans have, right? Mm-hmm. We, our poverty is very, a stickier type of poverty than white Americans have. Mm-hmm. And so going to young affords me the opportunity to see that there are plenty of like low-income blacks, of course, but also there are plenty of black people who have two-parent households. There are plenty of black people who, you know, are middle class. Like, I, when I went to high school, I was surprised that there was, at the number of kids who wore, like, designer bags. 
Mm. You know, like, it was such a thing to have, like, a coach bag back in the 90s, you know? And, like, seeing, like, teenage girls getting a new coach bag every every season, it was like, what what is a coach bag? What is coach? (laughs) You know, like, who is Eddie Bauer? Right, 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 Eddie Bauer, my God. And so, like, becoming aware of this, like, long tradition of a black middle class, particularly in a place like Chicago, Mm. was really helpful for understanding that um, these stereotypes of, quote-unquote, akata were very problematic. And even for people who have, you know, like, single-parent households, like, there are plenty of black people who may be struggling, but they're raising their children, you know, to do do well, to excel academically. So um, one thing I find really funny about that term akata Mm -hmm. is is that... From what I understand, um, it comes from a Yoruba word. Yeah. Um, and that the, the idea of the akata is like this idea of a cat that is far away from home. It's like a right? wild that thing, yeah. Like a wild cat that's mm-hmm. not domesticated. It's not mm-hmm. a domesticated cat. And the funny thing is that for these Nigerians who are in America, really, they're the akata, right? <laughs> yes, like yes. Like the ones who are in Nigeria. They're like yes. the ones who are far away. You're far away from, from home. home. You, yeah, so you're you, the akata. Exactly. It's so I I I had an episode about this this word in the first season of this show because it grinds my gears so much when people use this term. And it just it's so derogatory, but it's very contradictory because you're you're describing somebody that is, you know, um that is away from home and and, and it's also like you are you're kind of you're trying intentionally to to jab at the history of African Americans being taken away, you know, as slaves involuntarily, and being, you know, um, being out there by themselves, you know, in America and not having this form of culture, proper culture that Nigerians believe is so authentic of, to Africa mm-hmm. that no one else can have any other culture other than, you know, the Nigerian or the the African way from the continent, which doesn't, which I find very just very wrong so yeah i i agree because they, they are the akata you are the ones that you're here you're the ones that's trying to find domestication in america like <laughs> relax you know so uh right. but but i completely agree so then okay so now you you've transitioned but also, i think Go ahead. it's important to point out that like when i was growing up akata was not always a bad word really akata, yeah like when i was growing up i felt like akata was sometimes used to refer like Sometimes people use a word in a negative way, like, oh, that Akata over there. But they're also like, oh, like, who is, did he marry an Akata? Right? Like, same like she's not, like, she's not Caribbean or Jamaican. Yeah. And she's not Nigerian. She's, like, a person who's from the United States, mm-hmm. like an African-American. Before, because the 80s, right, African-American was still, like, just the beginning. You yeah. know, the beginning stages. Just when Jesse Jackson was like, hey, we have Italian-Americans, we should also have African-American, right? Like, yeah. it was. So that time when people were mostly using the term black. And so I thought that wasn't an additive back then, at least not in the early 80s. I think that now in 2020, it has like almost like essentially a negative connotation to that word. But that's very interesting. Although truth be told, when I spend time with Nigerians, people will still use the word akata to refer to that African-American. It's just a thing where we know not to use it in front of other African-Americans. Right. they might get offended. Right. So it's like, okay, well, if you're not going to use the word in front of them, then obviously there's something up, right? Like, so you, you still want to be considered mm-hmm. of that. But I wonder, exactly. right, This the, the relation, and, I, and I'm probably going to talk more about this, but I really want to get into your, your journey that led you to discover 
Brazil and how you got into in touch with that as an African or Nigerian who started doing work in Brazil because you went to UIC, UIUC, shout out to University of Illinois, it's my alum. Um, but then uh, you went there and you, you, you did your, your master's in Harvard and then you went to Rutgers, am I correct? No, I went to Harvard and then I went to UCLA to do my PhD. UCLA. I'm, I apologize. Yes, UCLA. And then you got the gig at, at Rutgers. And so, like, so, so you went from, you know, being in the Midwest to then going to the East and then going out West, right? And mm-hmm. then now, you know, you're back in the East. But, like, wh- how did you find yourself developing this interest in Brazil, um, rather than, for example, a place like Africa? Well, obviously, there are not that many white people in Africa, but, like, other places in the islands of diaspora like why why brazil sure that's a great question so i went to the university of illinois at urbana champagne and um i had a roommate who was colombian from colombia originally Mm -hmm. but um she came when she's in in her early teens and I remember, like, I was she was colombian and i looked like like she was a friend of mine and we like ended up being roommates and I remember one day she told me, you know, my mom is black and my dad is white. And I thought she was crazy. I was like, what? Excuse me? Like, what are you saying? She said, yeah, my dad is black, my mom is white, and we're all Colombian. And I was like, how did that happen? And so I took a class on Africa and world perspective and came to learn that the largest populations of black people in the Western Hemisphere don't live in the United States. But they actually live in Latin America and the Caribbean. And that Brazil received 13 times more enslaved Africans than the United States. So I started having this burgeoning interest in um, understanding what it is, like this whole process. Like, first of all, why is it that in the United States we only learn about slavery as far as like the United States? You know, a little bit about the Caribbean, but not about this whole swath of like millions and millions of other Black people who live in the, in the Western Hemisphere, but also. Um, Taking this class on African world perspective um, really opened my eyes to the fact that Nigerians and Africans at large have had a major impact on the world. Mm. And that only understanding the, the influence of Africans as far as like in Africa and in the U.S. was really limiting. So I actually um, ended up studying Spanish. So I was a double major in Spanish and sociology at the University of Illinois mm-hmm. and decided I want to become fluent in Spanish. And so I went to, to Spain to study abroad. My BFF at the time was going to be studying abroad in France. I was going to be in Paris. I was like, I'm going to go to Spain so we can like, hang out like right. in Europe, do the Europe tour thing, right? And so I went to Spain, learned Spanish, which is like a very like particular type of Spanish. Like, don't get me wrong. It's, like, it's weird to like like learn Spanish in Spain and then come back to America talking to you, you know, like you almost have a list, especially as a black woman, right? People yeah. are like, wait, you're a black girl, but you speak like you're from Madrid. You know, like how does that happen? Not like from like Havana or like from Cartagena right. or, you know, or even like, you know, El Jefe or Ben El Jefe, you know, Mexico City at the time. And so um, I studied in Spain for a year, learned Spanish, and just became like enamored with the language. Is there an authentic? Um, is there an authenticity, or like, is there some level of authenticity that comes with speaking Spanish from Spain compared to like Mexico City? Because I, I'm thinking about it in comparison to people who speak English, like from England, who have this British mm-hmm. accent 
that has kind of been historically perceived as this like sophisticated type of, you know, language. So is it looked upon in that same manner, even, you know, just out of curiosity? You know, it's funny. I, I think I, I, I want to say yes. Okay. And since that in Spain, they think that we speak, you know, the queen Spanish or the king Spanish, right? Wow. Like ours is the Spanish and everybody else is just speaking a derivative of our Spanish, right? Yeah. And then in Latin America, like like most colonized peoples, right? Um, there is a, like Spanish, the Royal Academy of Spain's like Spanish dictionary that a lot of people reference across the Americas. And so Spanish is still seen in some circles, uh, excuse me, Castilian Spanish is still seen in some circles as like, you know, the ideal type of Spanish. Hmm. And it's funny to think about how people understand varieties of Spanish and how specifically how that becomes racialized. Mm -hmm. Because there's this understanding, I think, in a lot of Latin America that Spanish has been um, heavily influenced by um, African languages, by the presence of Africans, you know, in Latin America. That the Spanish that they speak is not quite as good as the Spanish spoken by people who are whiter, who have more of a, you know, the quote-unquote Castilian, you know, heritage right. and background. Right. So this is why places like um, Colombia, you've got people who are from Bogota who talk about themselves as speaking like the best Spanish ever, you know, Where, and looking down at people from the coast, you know, seeing all their Spanish is a little bastardized, right? Mm. Or people talking about um, people who speak Spanish in Cuba as like, speaking quote-unquote bad Spanish because, uh, you know, instead of saying, Elado, they say elado, you know, they mm. cut off, you know, a couple of, um, they cut off some of the um, consonant sounds and they like, maybe the Puerto Ricans do more when they need to do a ra, you know, according to, you know, um, some people. And so there's, huh. there's definitely a racialized element to speaking Spanish and the whiter your Spanish is, quote unquote, whiter, you know, the better your Spanish is. That is so fascinating because it's just the parallels between Spanish and even in English is still is, is similar as far as the racialization of it. And whoever speaks it sets the standard of what the quality of the language is, which um, which then kind of leads me just to add, you know, in regards to that concept of racialization, especially in, in Latin America. And, you know, we've we've had maybe some conversations over the time um, in past episodes about just that idea of people who are Afro-Latinx and, and that I, you know, there's some people don't claim it. For example, there's some who may identify as Dominican Republic um, from the Dominican Republic who are Dominican, I should just say is, you know, they, they don't inherit or they don't claim their blackness, right? They don't, they don't, they don't associate with, you know, the, their black identity completely um, you know, there's some, there's a lot of, uh, I would say, I would, I would say maybe not tension per se, but there's some, there's some conf conflict of sorts that it kind of exists for those who kind of are working with the Afro Latinx identity. And have you seen that, you know, in, in whether you were in Spain or even when you've ever, you know, visited the, you know, Latin America or, you know, or converse with people from these spaces, is, is that something that's very prevalent? So I think it's important to recognize that, like that saying again, that race is a social construct, right? Mm -hmm. And so here in the United States, we take for granted almost this term like Latino or Latinx, right? Um, and we think about it as people who have, you know, heritage in Latin America, um, and particularly for Spanish speaking, but although not only, right? right? And so when I studied abroad in Spain, I remember um, people there having 
they saw themselves as Spanish, but people would, often, would sometimes like, occasionally reference like being Latino in the sense of having heritage descended from the Romans. Oh. Right? Like having a language that has its origins in Latin. Right. Which is very different from how people think about Latino in the United States, exactly. right? Yeah. Um, and when I was, um, so I guess I didn't explain like how I ended up doing recent uh, research in, on race in Brazil, but suffice it to say that there are more black people there. So I ended up having to learn Portuguese to understand what was going on with black people um, in Latin America because I was interested in Brazil. But when I remember going to Brazil, people didn't, there didn't have a Latino identity. They saw Latinos as people who were like the Spanish speakers, right? The people who look, like the, the Latinos, like, you know, they speak Spanish, they dance salsa, you know, merengue, right? That's not our culture. We dance samba, you know, we do other things, pagogi, mm -hmm. you know, baile funkies, that's what we go, right? A party. Mm -hmm. um, but then in the United States, there's this construct of, you know, people who have their heritage in all of these different countries, you know, and whether you speak Quechua or you speak Spanish or you speak Hmong or you speak Portuguese, all of these people are, you know, Latino mm -hmm. or Latinx. And so this whole Afro-Latinx identity, I'm really happy to see that there's, you know, this push to recognize blackness in Latin America, right? And blackness in the Latinx population in the United States. I was just listening to Jennifer Jones, who's a professor at University of Illinois at Chicago, mm -hmm. um, talk about how the Pew Research, um, how Pew has done research showing that almost like one in five um, Latin, members of the Latinx population identifies as Afro-Latinx. So that's not nothing to, you know, to, to see that or to laugh at, right? If like yeah. one in five people yeah. see themselves as an Afro-descendant. So it's not, so that helps us to see that there is this black presence um, that we can't just think of blackness as one thing and Latinx is another thing, that there are plenty of people who straddle both of those worlds. Right. Yeah. And so for for these people, like, you know, interactions with police can be very difficult and very, you know, can be fraught, as well as interactions with ICE agents. Right. Thinking about the deportation. These are people who have to navigate both of those worlds in ways that aren't often um, articulated in our society and ways that are not often recognized in our society. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and we're going to talk a little bit about the social justice piece in a bit. But you, you, when you mentioned the whole idea of navigating two worlds and I and I think about it because you present yourself as a unique version of a black transnational, in my opinion, because not only and, you know, not only have you built a connection that was naturally in, in you know, um, naturally inherent to you because of your parents with Nigeria, but now you've also created a connection with Latin America. And so how do you, in your words, like navigate these multiple worlds, your connection with Nigeria and your Nigerian identity, but this newfound relationship with Latin America, like how are you balancing that? And how is that influencing the way you go about your life and just in, in, in whether it's with work, your research, or just in general, how you carry yourself, the food, you eat, all those things. So I, this is going to sound a little cheesy, so forgive me, but I <sighs> see myself as a citizen of the world. A global you know? citizen? Because a global citizen. Because my, the thing is, like, no I matter where you go on this planet, you will find a Nigerian. Yes. Right? <laughs> if you were in China, you will find Nigerians. Yes. If you were in South Korea, you will find a Nigerian. If you were in the UK, of course, you'll find Nigerians. When I was in Brazil, I encountered Nigerians. You will find Nigerians on, on any, like, 
any area of this planet, there will be somebody somewhere who is like, yes, you know, I'm Nigerian, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think that like having a Nigerian identity means that I always feel like we're just a migratory people, you know? And of course that's related to the political situation back home. But also I think it's related to this idea that like black people are the original people, Mm. right? Like Mm -hmm. the original people on the planet were African. And so there's this idea for me that like, Everything that we have, you know, anything that humans have done owes, has, has a debt to Africa, right? Yeah. And so for, for me also, um, in addition, I feel like black people just make things better, you know? Wherever we go on the planet, like, our, the music will be enhanced because mm-hmm. we're like, you know what? I see that, like, you know, thing that you're doing, you know, with flamenco, or I see that thing that you're doing, but we're going to, like, add a little bit more rhythm to it. Yeah. And, like, you know put some stank on it and yeah. make it salsa. You know, or like, we're going yeah. to, yeah, you like sprinkle a little bit more percussion there yeah. and like, now you can shake your booty, yeah. you know? <laughs> and so, and so, so much so that you've got people who are like, um, of course with African-Americans, for example, think about like, you know, the descendants of Africans who were enslaved, like creating their culture and manipulating it and creating new ways Man. of doing music and dance and being in the world and food. And then like, Amer- white Americans copying that mm. and then that being copied in like China or like India and South Korea. Right. Mm-hmm. So at the, at its very root, you know, it's something that's African that's black. And so for me, I, I, you know, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of anti-blackness in this, on this planet, right. A lot of like, racism, but at the same time, I feel like, well, Nigerians are everywhere and we always make a way wherever we go. So Absolutely. I'll figure it out wherever I go. I'll figure things out. No, I, I, I mean, I think that's wonderful. And I think you bring up a really, really good point that it resonates with me because I do believe that whole global citizen thing has is, is been something that's been told to me by my parents for for as long as I can remember. So, no, it's it's not cheesy at all. But speaking of that idea of, you know, the, the boundaries of love, I, w- I want to talk a little bit about that and just kind of give some, some shout out to the book. So when you were working on that book, right, I know you talked about the background and, and, your, and your roommate, but how... Like, what message were you truly trying to convey when putting this book together to the readers? So I don't know if you remember the early 2000s, (laughs) but that was a point when people were really celebrating multiraciality. Yeah. And people were really celebrating this growth and interracial couple. And so I, um, I went to Harvard, did my master's degree, learned the Portuguese, went back to Chicago to work at a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. And then I, so I lived in Chicago and then I moved to Los Angeles. I was like, I'm going to be a Brazilian. I'm going to say race in Brazil. I'm going to work with Edward Tejas and, you know, learn better Portuguese and go to Brazil. And I arrived in Los Angeles. I was like, wow, there are a lot of interracial couples here. Way more than I saw in Chicago. Interesting. Whatever. Not my problem. Let me move, you know, move on with my life. Then I go to Brazil for the first time. And I remember being in Sao Paulo and being like, wait, what are the interracial couples? Brazil is this country that, you know, touted itself as a place where race mixture is abundant mm-hmm. and where race and color are not impediments to friendships, to marriage, to interactions. And yet when I was in Sao Paulo, I realized, like, I was, as a, you know, an American who, you know, was, you know, not wealthy by any stretch of the imagination, but I was a graduate student. 
But going to Sao Paulo, I was hanging out in mostly middle class spaces right. and largely seeing people who were who looked like they were the descendants of Italians, the mm. descendants of Portuguese, mm. occasionally the descendants of Japanese, because um, Sao Paulo has believe, the largest population of, Jap- of Japanese people outside of Japan. And, but rarely seeing black people apart from people who were domestics or security guards or people who worked wow. in those neighborhoods. And I was like, how is this happening in Brazil? This isn't supposed to happen. And that was what ended me, like, like what, how I ended up going down the rabbit hole of what does it mean to be an interracial couple in Brazil? And how is that different from the United States? Mm. So I ended up doing my research in Rio de Janeiro because it's a much cooler place. I'm just kidding. Now, shout out to the Paulistas. <laughs> Um, but um, I had more contacts in Rio de Janeiro. Like friends would move there from UCLA after graduating. My education advisor had a lot of friends and contacts in Rio. So I ended up doing a comparison between the experiences of black-white couples in Rio and L.A. in terms of black women with white men, black men with white women in both places to understand how does race mixture affect um, seeing a person as being different from you like uh, and so this this is simultaneously happening when um people are like oh interracial marriage is a beautiful thing it's a great thing everybody should just be racially mixed then then racism will magically disappear and this is like the standard understanding in the 2000s like oh yeah racism won't be a problem in, in the near future because we'll all be mixed by them we'll all be beige or brown mm-hmm. and i remember people telling me that when i was in la and i was like wait you're saying that there won't be any more black people you know i'm being like a little like i feel like i'm a little offended by that but i don't know why you know and then also like reading the sociological literature particularly the the literature and demography and when people were saying oh like interracial marriage leads to this breakdown of ethnic and racial boundaries because now you have multiracial families Mm. and i was like but how do i explain those biracial kids i know who talk about how they don't interact with their white family members because they don't like them right you know like because right. they don't like black people. And right. so I'm like, uh, I don't know if I buy those arguments. And it's not like blackness ceases to exist because you're married to a white person, right? Exactly. Or like being an Asian woman, like people aren't still going to see you as a forever foreigner just because you're with your white husband. And so, so I, I thought that like looking at the experiences of these couples would, would show or illustrate the various strategies or the various ways that race gets either reproduced deconstructed right it gets race um this difference of us versus them along racial and ethnic lines can be bridged over right like we are all brazilian like that's a way of saying like yeah we're black and we're white and we're brown but we're all brazilian because we're all one people right yeah um so it's a way of like blurring or eradicating that that ethno-racial difference it doesn't really happen in the united states for historical reasons mm. and so that's how i ended up um writing this book on um, black white couples that is fascinating now you bring up some interesting points that so so how did you explore how it may also have some type of influence in the african community specifically the nigerian community if possible or did you like or could you even share your thoughts on what that would look like as far as the interracial marriage in our culture so I didn't interview a lot of people who were African um, okay. for the study. Um, I, so when I did my my research, I did, however, find that there I ended up doing more interviews with women who are black who are African, like from, from Africa or like their 
so I only looked at like native born, you know, people who are American, like yeah, native born yeah. Brazilians for the most part. But like when I talked to these couples and found these couples, which was really hard to do, by the way, um, I found um, a few people who were second generation Africans. Okay. Um, as well as, but very, I didn't find, I think I maybe interviewed one guy who was second generation Jamaican, but it was striking to me how there were more women who were, you know, the immigrant background who are black than men were, mm-hmm. even though, you know, you know, interracial couples interracial marriage is more common among black men um, than it is for black women. So I, I can't really speak to um, a general pattern in like how they perceived, you know, marrying a white person. Mm-hmm. But what I can say is that when I interviewed um, couples involving white men with black women, that white men often saw their wives as black, but not quite black. And this happened as far as these black, and also when the black women talk, how was like, yes, I have a black identity. I'm definitely a black person, but right, a lot of people don't see me as black because I have very light skin. So I interviewed a lot of women who just happen to be very light skinned. Wow. And that was a, a larger phenomenon when talking to black people who were women in comparison to black men who were married to white women. Like, so there's a color distinction in terms of the black people who marry who intermarry as far as gender is concerned. Hmm. And that also played out as far as ethnicity, where um, the, the black women were like, I'm black, but my blackness is a little different because I am immigrant, you know, I'm a descendant of immigrants. Yeah. So there was this dynamic happening in the U.S. where the black women who are intermarrying were not, quote-unquote, the standard, quote-unquote, you know, U.S. descendant of slaves um, with unambiguously brown skin. And I think that part of that was part of the reason or part of what I noticed in the data was that the women who were unambiguously black women from, you know, U.S. descendants, descendants of U.S. slaves, were women who experienced more hostility than the other women. Women who, like, had white husbands whose family members were less okay with their relationship versus the black women who were very light-skinned, who people mistook as Latina, like, the white guys' families were more okay with those types of black girls, wow. you know, or they're more okay with those black girls who were descendants of immigrants than they were with the descendants of U.S. slaves. It's that's so interesting because of just that that intersecting factor uh, of, of colorism <laughs> starts to to play a major role even when you start to ex- go even deeper into it. And there's so many questions I could ask, but I, but I, I also want to be uh, respectful of time, but I, I want to definitely touch on what you are currently working on um, in regards to, you know, uh, social justice and Africans navigating social justice and, and what led you to that path and what have you been, you know, exploring so far in, in, that, in this particular stage of your research or your work? So I um, have taken my interest in how people understand ethnic and racial boundaries, and I'm now applying it. So before I applied it to like a family as an institution, now I'm shifting gears and looking at the nursing profession. Mm. I'm looking at how um, the nursing profession um, either um, uh, how it either reproduces white supremacy or how it challenges white supremacy, mm. and how this can lead to many of these racial health disparities that we're seeing, you know, as far as um, black people like dying younger, you know, having 
worst outcomes, health outcomes from diabetes, heart disease, et cetera. So you can just go down the line. And we see that black people have worse health outcomes in general. And so I was really interested in how um, African immigrants are negotiating being black and being African Mm -hmm. across generations in this very, very white field. So nurses are about 75 to 80% white people, majority women. And I was, so I'm interested in how um, Africans negotiate their, their um, interactions with fellow nurses who are white or of a different ethnic or racial background, as well as how they navigate their interactions with their patients. And the experiences they have as it pertains to xenophobia, like there's a lot of like anti, you know, anti-African sentiment, anti-Black sentiment as well. But they experience this, um, the intersection of those two things. And I'm interested in how um, they negotiate that, um, you know, in their everyday lives. Because as I mentioned before, people don't really like, um, pe- again, like people often think of like Nigerians on the one hand as like the most accomplished of, you know, immigrants. Like, yes. We have like higher rates of like college graduation and, you know, um, high levels of socioeconomic status on the one hand. On the other hand, um, people don't like people with accents in the United States, right? Mm-hmm. We live, we're a bit of a xenophobic country. And so what I think is happening is that people who are first-generation immigrants are experiencing more hostility than people who are second-generation immigrants mm-hmm. um, in the nursing field, in the mm-hmm. nursing profession. And thinking about their interactions with patients in which patients may maybe like, say that they can't understand what they're saying. You know, and those types of aggressions that they're experiencing as, as they're trying to provide care to Americans. I think these issues are especially pressing given the current pandemic, right? Like COVID-19 is, is you know, still here, mm-hmm. still alive and kicking, mm-hmm. you know, wow. it's not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. And my questions are, like, how, how, how are Africans managing this? Yeah. It's very interesting that you bring that up because that is something that is similar to what my team and I are working on as well. We're not necessarily focusing on nursing field, but we are exploring and collecting data right now on just African immigrants, whether they are second generation, whether they are first generation, or someone who identifies like a 1.5er who came in at a young age, and trying to see how the, the pandemic itself is impacting this particular community, um, and their transnational connections back to their native homeland, be it Africa, mm-hmm. whether it's Nigeria or Ghana. But, you know, <clears throat> just the, that idea, for example, of when this pandemic hit and, you know, the most Nigerians um, or West Africans or just Africans in general will have responsibilities to family members back home, especially if they're first generation. And they, you know, you're working hard here. Most of them are nurses or most of them are, you know, CNAs or most of them might be doctors. But you have that transnational responsibility. And when you have a pandemic that plays a role and then you have the stimulus check that's coming in and then you have family members who are reaching out to you because they see on the news or they see on WhatsApp that the president is uh, the, the government is giving out free money. And how does that play a role, you know, when, you know, you're trying to explain to them that this is this isn't just free money. (laughs) Like this is something I need to take care of my family here. But also I understand that you want me to take care of you there. But, you know, now I have to balance it out. It can be very stressful um, in addition to also being a frontline worker, in addition to also just still trying to acculturate and still, 
navigate and still be seen as someone, you know, that's not just this model minority. So like it's it's so many different layers that we're trying to unpack as well. So when you when you share that, it just reminds me, you know, that there's so much work that needs to be done um, as far as being able to continue to uh, bring to light the issues that exist in the African community um, that has not yet been exposed by research that, you know, we're, we're striving to continue to bring to light. Um, <clears throat> so, okay, outside of that, as we kind, as we kind of wrap up, I want, I just kind of want to... Well, can I add one thing? Oh, please to, do, please um, do, go ahead. Go ahead. And so that's just thinking about the U.S. context. Um, if you remember back in like January, February, remember all those Africans that were stranded in China? Yes. How like yes. China had the, like the, they were the heart of the pandemic for a long time. And there were all these Africans that were from, you know, all across the continent who were stuck there. Mm-hmm. And many people, and like the Chinese government had like literally like put many of them on either lockdown or many of them were kicked out of hotels yep. or kicked out of their apartments because they were, you know, seen as people who were vectors for this illness that was killing and like, you know, that was hurting the Chinese native population, right? Yeah. So um, thinking about this pandemic, and how it's impacted Africans particularly is very complicated. Mm. I remember I was in contact. Oh, I'm, I was in contact with a couple of people. And I had like, read a number of news articles looking at the experiences of Africans in China. And many of them were like, I cannot bring this illness home. Like, even if I were to go home, I wouldn't go because I'm not really sure that my country has a capacity to handle right. this illness. Right. And right. also, like, healthcare here is free. It's paid for by the Chinese government. Yeah. Whereas if I were to go home sick, like, we, my family would have to pay, we'd have this additional financial burden of paying my hospital bill. But, like, yep. in places like Nigeria, you can't leave the hospital until you pay your bill, yep. you know? So they're like, it's just better for me to even be here, even though I'm experiencing all this xenophobia and this anti African and anti black sentiment oh here God. in China. So yeah. it's really complicated when thinking about it. You know, COVID is a global issue, right? But uh-huh. my research is specifically looking at the United States at this point. It'll be kind of comparative at some point, but for now, it's the US. No, that is a very, 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 very true point. And um, I, I think that just speaks a little bit more to, you know, what we kind of talk about a lot in this podcast, which is that the various, the nuances in, in the Black identity and, and, and some of the things that, whether it's Africans or African-Americans and and our relations and our impact on the world and how we are trying to uncover it. And some of the hard decisions that we have to make, like you said, you know, healthcare, having to realize and, and negotiate getting free healthcare compared to going back home, even though you may feel, you know, more welcomed with your people back there, but you know, healthcare is important. And if I'm sick, I know that I paid for it over here compared to over there and having to deal with which is the lesser of the two evils. And that's something that people mm-hmm. deal with on a daily basis. So, um, but I want to know, with in addition to just the pandemic being alive and kicking and well, when you talk about white supremacy, I would be remiss if I didn't at least give you an opportunity to share your thoughts on just what you think can be done in regards to the social unrest and all the other things that are happening and the roles that Africans, transnationals, you know, people who are bicultural or even just native borns, like, what do you think? you know, we can continue to do to bridge the gaps, whether it's between, you know, African and African-Americans or whether it's between black and white people, like what can be done to be able to create a little bit more of a, of a, of um, some type of alleviation for, for our our current climate. Mm. That's such a complicated question. I know. Um, (laughs) So 
I'm really happy that the Black Lives Matter movement that's been, you know, around for several, almost a decade now, right, has really like erupted this year, um, you know, in 2020, where like uh, people are like, okay, enough with the police killings already, mm-hmm. you know, like we are going to riot, we are going to rebel against a system in which police are not held accountable for murdering, for murdering civilians, right? Like mm-hmm. this is not a situation which, you know, um, the situation in which if you're committing, a, let's say that you are a criminal, right? Let's say you committed a crime. We have a whole justice system Allegedly. that is supposed to, you know, work. Where you're supposed to like, okay, you get arrested. And then you have, you're entitled to a trial by jury, right? Where you go to court to determine your guilt. And then you might spend time in jail, right? Mm-hmm. But we've got a situation where if you're a criminal, if, big if, if. that we, we've made it okay for the police to shoot and kill you. Like, last I checked, we, have, we do have a Second Amendment, whether or not you agree with it, we, we do have the right to bear arms. Mm-hmm. So having a gun should not be a, a, a reason for the police to kill you, right? Mm-hmm. So what we're seeing is that black people are just minding their own business, right? Just like going out and getting some Skittles, you know? People who are, you know, just like hanging out with their friends, people who are sleeping in their beds in their brown and tailor, right, are, are killed on a regular basis by the police or killed by people who think they're, you know, the police, like vigilantes or what have you. Thinking about George um, Zimmerman and the Trayvon Martin case. Mm-hmm. But as, so just, I'm really happy about everything that's going on with BLM right now. And I'm, I'm really encouraged by our. By the young people. I'm a professor, so I get to spend a lot of time with young people and to see how they're critiquing and trying to understand this thing called capitalism. And are there ways to make it work better for more of us? Are there ways to make policing work better for more of us so that, like, about a thousand people aren't killed in the United States by the police every year? And that's just not even thinking about black people. It's just like, why is it that the United States is killing so many you know, civilians? Like, mm. That should not be happening in a country that calls itself a democracy. Yeah. But now thinking about the role of Africans and African immigrants, um, you talk about bridging the gap, but I'm not really, I don't know, I think that we, over, that we overestimate the extent to which there is a gap, mm. you know? Okay. I think it's sometimes, like, as a sociologist, we think a lot about conflict, right? That's just the bias of my discipline. So we think about, like, why is it that so many Black people, so, so many African Americans don't get along with Africans? But then when you look at like, people's everyday lives, we see that there are plenty of African-Americans who work side by side with African-Americans, plenty of Africans who marry African-Americans, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of cooperation that happens that is not as sexy of a story to tell. It's mm-hmm. much easier and more interesting to focus on the problems than, than to focus on the great things that are happening, you know, the great cultural exchanges that are happening. Well, now Afrobeats is something that African-Americans are dancing to at the club, yep, right? Like, yep, yep. It, there's a lot of rich exchange happening right now. But also, I kind of question the extent to which everybody needs to get along. Maybe everybody doesn't need to get along all of the time. You yeah, know, maybe yeah. it's okay to just, like, be Nigerian in Houston and, like, eat your, your eba or, like, eat your <laughs> moimoy and, like, hang out, like, go to your Nigerian church, you know, and, like, hang out with your people and yeah. just feel like, hey, I like my people, right? Like, yeah. I don't know that we... Or like if you're African-American, like, hey, I like being with my people. I like being in my black community. Like, I love celebrating my culture as an African-American. You know, I'm not necessarily convinced that there is as much of a problem or as much of a gap as people think there is. 
and I'm not necessarily sure that it's always a problem if there mm. is like people just appreciating like being around their people. Yeah, you know, as I, long as they're not being racist or like you know ethnocentric, that's a problem. You know, but as far as just celebrating yourself and your culture, it's another thing. I, I think that's a very refreshing point of view because I, I think what I definitely agree with is that like most Nigerians will say it's it's not by force <laughs> like it's not it's not mandatory that we all have to get along I think the whole idea of the kumbaya thing is is it's a it's a it's almost like a, a utopian thing that we, we'll never get and, and it, it doesn't have to happen I don't think that's how civilization should work um but as you said like if there's this level of this you know, um, this racist, uh, ethnocentric type of perspective, then it can kind of create problems. But there's more some there's something more to it about being, you know, you can disagree, but you don't have to disrespect. And if you are able to be civil and be at least be able to understand each other, it's not mandatory that you all have to be able to get along or agree. And, and I think we can still be able to cohabitate and live in the same communities and and still be able to function as human beings because not everybody gets along, even in your own respective communities. I mean, even if you go down to, right. go to Nigeria, Nigeria exactly. Like how people are complaining about the house of Fulani. Exactly. Come on now, Nigeria, like, what's that really supposed to be a state? You read my mind. Know. It doesn't seem like it, right? Like, why do we expect that, like, everybody always has to get along with Nigerians back home in Nigeria, not all getting along. You read yeah, my mind. Black people everywhere to always get along. Like, no. Let's no. be real. South Africa, like, people are, like, protesting at the Nigerian embassies because yeah. of their, the ideas of of Nigerian immigrants as, like, bringing crime. Mm-hmm. Even though, you know, I think crime is down, even though, like, the issues in South Africa are endemic to like, the political system. But no, yeah. it's easier to blame the immigrants. Here, you might say, go blame the Mexicans. Yep. Even though Mexicans have stopped, you know, largely migrating to the United States for like about 10 years, 10, 15 years now. But like, no, it's all those, you know, Mexicans that are coming here. But, well, are those people really Mexican? Are they Central American? Are they like refugees seeking a better life because they'll get killed in their home country? Right. Or are they just economic migrants? Like, those are all different things that we just collapse into, like, blame the immigrants, yep. you know? But all this to say that, like, we really need to... And disentangle this idea that all black people everywhere need to get along all the time. Yeah, I don't think it's realistic. That's not realistic. That's definitely an utopia that I just don't think we. It, it we we if we aim for that, it's. I think it will. It it might create some level of progress, but then it starts to create unrealistic expectations on how human beings like really function and that's just right. that's just not <laughs> i don't think that's necessarily that's not, what, that's not how we roll as a human being no. we don't do that we have wars we have fights yeah we will have a conflict with the people from two villages down because they're taking all the water you yep. know <laughs> yeah yeah i i think there needs to be collaboration in, in 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 certain things especially when you're talking about the the fight for equality and being anti-racist i think we can collaborate but I don't think we have to always. It's it like it happens in in in, the, in world history all the time. Countries become allies and they they have a common goal and then they they achieve the goal and they go about their their separate ways. I I, I look at it in that manner where I, when I consider the idea of bridging the gaps and coming together, I do think that there are opportunities for for African Americans who want to do it to build relationships back with Africa and create that relationship. But I don't necessarily think it's mandatory that all African-Americans and all, they must be friends. I, I think that would be, 
I think that would, that's hyperbole and I don't, I don't think that can ever happen. So, so, but anyway, um, you know, I, I think this, we've definitely gone a little bit past the time limit that I, that I had initially had, but this was a great conversation. And I do want to just say once again, thank you very, very much, um, for just taking the time, Dr. Suji, for, you know, just your insight and, and for the work you do. Um, and, and is there a way that people who are interested to learn a little bit more about you or stay in touch with you, is there a way they can be able to find you on social media or email? Do you want to share? Sure. So um, my, I have a Twitter handle, and it's like at Chinyere Osuji. Um, that's where I'm on Twitter. Um, I'm also on Instagram at Chi from the Shy. So, like, if you're from Chicago, you know, you know the, and I mean, I guess everybody knows the Shy because yeah. the show, right? <laughs> but Chi, but so it's C H I from then D A C H I. That's me on Instagram. Um, and like, you can follow my work. Um, you can do some Google scholaring if you like want to see my scholarly work. You know, Google my name. Um, and also, I'm, I'm a professor at Rutgers Camden, so you can always like go to you know our sociology page and find me there. Wonderful, wonderful. Again, Dr. Chinyere Suji, thank you so much for being on the show. Also, just to kind of put it out there, she will be. I should say she is part of our talk series called Growing Up Immigrant. That is going to be out there. Or, you know, so look out for that. Should be a very fun conversation. Very excited to have you on that as well. I think we'll be able to have really, really fun conversations with other people about just our experiences growing up, you know, with with, with our parents and as immigrants. Um, and I'm looking forward to having you on there as well. Thank you for having me. It's been my pleasure to speak with you today. Yes. And you have a good one. And we'll talk again soon. Sounds good. So that's going to do it for this episode of My Black is Transnational. I'd like to thank Dr. Chinyere Suji for joining me and sharing her expertise, her personal story, and her passion um, for what she does um, with us. Um, continue to wish you much success, Dr. Suji. And I'm actually looking forward to Dr. Suji joining us again for what will be our Growing Up Immigrant talk series that will be coming soon to this podcast so please make sure to tune in for that and if you want to listen to other episodes of the past and the future please make sure to subscribe to this podcast on any of your favorite podcast listening apps um, you can also check us out on our website at www.blacktransnational.wixsite.com podcast or you can follow us on instagram and facebook at black transnational podcast or you can follow me the host at black transnational underscore to stay tuned and stay updated on what's happening with this podcast so with that being said, I'll be signing off now. Thank you so much for your time. My name is Dr. Kalechi Bay Lamberts. My black is transnational. And I hope by the end of this, yours will be too. Peace.